my kids to Fiesta yesterday. Anyone do Fiesta? Or are you just totally burnt out? Viva Fiesta? Anybody? Churros and flamenco dancing? One of our richest traditions as a city. I love it. Uh, I love parts of it. I don't love the traffic. I don't love the crowds. But I love the confetti. I love the noise. And I love watching uh, the parades. And uh, we took our kids to see it. And I was just laughing because my kids couldn't see anything. Uh, there was basically a fence in front of them from people camped out from the, night, uh, the day before ready to watch this parade. There were both literal fences, little bar- barricades all along State Street, and figurative fences, people uh, that were camped out in lawn chairs and uh, taking up that, that entire area. It didn't bother me. They were all sitting down, and I could see the whole parade. But my kid, my, you know, my kid who's like three feet tall, is looking over, trying to look over the shoulders of these people and over these fences to see the glory and the beauty that is old Spanish days here in Santa Barbara. And, uh, I remember at one point, Jude looked at me, and he's all, pick me up, and he was, he was just fussing about, and I lifted him up on my shoulder, and his face just came alive. He's like, this is what I've been missing for the past 30 minutes, and all of a sudden, people in front of us, I don't know why they moved, but they just changed positions. They left, and an entire gully was opened up to us. We saw all sorts of things, and we're just enjoying uh, what was and is right there in the middle of our city, and uh, that got me thinking about this, this idea of fences, this idea of a barricade that prevents people from seeing what needs to be seen. For Jude, it was a wall of people. It was actual barricades and fences. And in this passage, we see a number of different uh, metaphorical fences uh, involved in the li- uh, life of a, a group of women that Luke wants us to see and identify with. One of them is physical. She's got an infirmity. Some of them are sick. They have infirmities. Uh, This could be a physical sickness. It could be mental illness. It could be a number of things, but there's something that is holding them down and holding them back. For others, it's not physical. It's a spiritual fence. Look at Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven demons had gone out. Spiritual oppression. Demonic oppression, which is very real attacking this precious daughter of God and keeping her from seeing the goodness of God in her life available to her. But it's not just spiritual and not just physical. Uh, there's social offenses, we could say. Uh, we're, we're, when we're looking at the scene in verse 1 through 3, we're seeing a variety of different backgrounds. We're seeing the very poor of the poor, uh, people who don't, can't even afford a place to live. They are homeless uh, in all... Uh, in all descriptions of the word. And then yet we see people like uh, Joanna, the wife of Chiza, Herod's household manager, a part of the aristocracy. And she's providing for this little fledgling movement out of her own means, not out of Chiza's means. She has money. She's very rich, which uh, perhaps means that she has, uh, she's old money. She's, she's just kind of been born into it, and it's a part of her life. However she got it, she's very rich, and she's a part of the socialite crowd of that day. And here she is hanging out with beggars and tax collectors and prostitutes and Jesus. All of these various fences, and not just economic, but uh, speak of, uh, uh, for example, gender. It's no accident that Luke highlights a group of women in a society that was dominated by men. And it's not just in this passage. This is one of many that women show up. It's almost like Luke wants us to get it. He wants to, to see Jesus dignifying 
women in that day and age, starting all the way back in chapter 1 with Elizabeth and Mary and Anna and Pete's mother-in-law and the widow of Nain and the sinful woman in chapter 7 and these women in chapter 8 and the hemorrhaging women, uh, uh, woman that we'll see in verses 43 and Martha and Mary and the crippled woman in chapter 13 and the parable of the woman with the lost coin and the parable of the woman, uh, widow and the judge, the widow's might, the women at the crucifixion, the women at the tomb, and the report of the women at the tomb. Luke wants us to see something, that there is a fence in society at that day, that Jesus is crossing. There are fences in that day that Jesus is crossing. Some are physical, some are spiritual. I imagine some would be emotional, and some are social and cultural. This is the opening scene in Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. And to you I ask, what's your fence? The things that distract us or blind us or forcibly keep us from seeing and believing in the goodness of God. What's the fence for you? It could be one of those or a variation of one of those or it could be something completely different. Everyone encounters a fence. Everyone is sitting on a fence. And the common narrative of fences like this, whether it's the sickness, the demonic oppression, uh, the, 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 uh, the social roles, or the economic poverty and divide, the common narrative in all of them is you are not enough. There's something wrong with you, and you don't deserve and cannot have goodness in life. The most, uh, the most vivid of which is the goodness of God. Whatever it is, the, narr- the common narrative here, whether it's with them thousands of years ago or us today, is you are not enough. There's something wrong with you. Now that could be false, but that could also be true. The woman who had a physical sickness, it's not like she was lying or deceived. There was a physical human limitation. Part of being human is identifying that we are not God and that we have human limits. We get tired. We suffer. We get sick. Our bodies don't always work the way that we want them to. Our bodies deteriorate over time. We long and grieve for uh, the youth of our, our, our younger days, and yet our bodies remind us that we are not all that. Our relationships are difficult to handle. We suffer with uh, pride. Perhaps we're self-centered and it ruins not only our lives but the relationships around us. We're not as affluent or rich as we would like to be. Perhaps rich isn't even, uh, isn't even a topic for us to dissect. We're just trying to pay the rent and put food on the table. Life is full of human limitations. And some of those limitations are things that need to be dealt with maybe have been imposed upon us, and others are just a natural outflow of being human. I get tired. We get sick. We encounter suffering. And when the, gospel, uh, when the Bible speaks about this good news that comes in Jesus Christ, the good news, you've got to understand, is not you are great. You have no limits. That's just what the world is trying to tell you to pull you down. No, you are successful. You can be everything that you want to be. Untapped human potential. You can overcome the odds. So just hug yourself and say, I can do it. The good news is not, you are great. 
nor is it that there is no fence or fences in your life. There is a fence, and some of you are facing one right now. The gospel doesn't skip around the bush or pretend or uh, offer a token of self-deception. It is not a self-help guru, a 60-minute infomercial that you can buy to boost your self-esteem. The gospel and the story of God makes absolutely clear and honest that life is full of limitations and difficulty and suffering and fences, things that hold us up or hold us back or hold us down. I want to I dive into why the gospel is such good news, if it's not that, if it's not a self-esteem boost. And I want to land there by way of a question. Why do you think people liked Jesus so much? Look at the crowds that followed him. Why did they love him so much? Whether it was the aristocrats of the Roman Empire or the tax collectors, or the prostitutes, or the promiscuous woman in John chapter 4 who is so shamed that she went to get uh, water in the dead of night, or, or in the dead of the afternoon when no one was there, or the centurion, or the lepers. Why, did, why were they so magnetically drawn to Jesus? I want to answer that in two points. One, it's, because, it's not because... He waited until they came off the fence to him, but he called them off the fence. Why, did pe- why were people so drawn to Jesus? This is going to help us to get an, an eye line into what the, the gospel is. Point one, Jesus called people off the fence. The gospel is not that we have overcome our barriers to get to God. The gospel is that God has overcome those barriers to get to us. And every story you see in the Bible with Jesus Every encounter, every dialogue, every argument, every uh, meal in a home involves Jesus going to the fence of a person who has been oppressed and held down, whether by others, by institutions, or by their own sin and setbacks. Jesus steps up to the fence and he calls them down from it. Jesus is the great inviter. He offers invitations. And he does not view the people on the fence through their physical deficiencies, he doesn't see you with your, uh, with your physical deficiencies as though that labels you to him. He's not slowed down by our spiritual oppression, by our depression, by despair. He, is not, he doesn't take his cue from the cultural scripts of the day. No, he heals physical deficiencies. He steps into the midst of people's sickness and turmoil and he sets them free. He's not slowed down by spiritual oppression. He kicks the demons out. Jesus, the great one who is known for evicting demonic principalities from people's homes and from their souls. Then rather than uh, gather his script from the uh, social milieu of the day, he breaks down social barriers and social fences in order to reach out to those whom the world has passed by. Whether it was the poor, and he would say it best, blessed are the poor. For the kingdom of God belongs to them. Or to this woman, Joanna. In the first century, women had very few rights, and the entire system of that day was predicated upon their lesser value 
in the face of men. Entire systems built on this type of inequality that did not see the dignity of women. This infiltrated not just Rome or Greek culture, but also uh, the people of God. Rabbis wouldn't even listen to a woman. They wouldn't even speak to a woman in public. They wouldn't even speak to their wife in public, much less have an ongoing dialogue with a strange woman. Jesus, a rabbi of all people, comes along and he dialogues. He sends his disciples in John chapter 4 to the grocery store to get food because he must needs. I love how the King James Version puts that verb there. He must needs get to Samaria where he would find the woman at the well. And there he speaks, and they dialogue, and he invites her into the kingdom of God. He speaks to people like Mary Magdalene, and he casts the demons out of them, and invites them to join him on his mission. He speaks to Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, a woman of aristocracy and affluence and means, who is looking for something, apparently, that was not satisfying her in the aristocracy and in the affluence of Rome and Greece. She finds it in Jesus, and Jesus meets her at the fence and says, come and follow me. He climbs onto the fence and invites them to step down. The second thing that Jesus does that seems to draw people to him, is that there always seems to be an invitation that follows the encounter. Whether the person gets healed of some sickness or demons get uh, cast out or marriages get renewed or minds are cleared or the gospel is preached and people are set free, it's never, it never just stops there. It is the beginning of an invitation that Jesus ushers to people. Follow me. In other words, he doesn't just call people down. He doesn't just call you down from the fence and tell you to walk off uh, by yourself. He calls you down on the fence to follow him on a pathway of life in himself. And people were drawn to this guy. Why? Because he did it to the socially ostracized. He did it to the poor. He did it to women in a patriarchal society. He did it to the poor, to the destitute, to the outcast, to the lepers whom nobody would touch. Jesus stepped into their garbage and said, come down from that fence and follow me. Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house to eat all of your food. Lady, can I have a drink of water? And let's talk about the Bible. And on and on and on the master, this good rabbi who would step into people's messes and call them out of the mess into a pathway of life in him. Jesus called people off the fence, but he also usher, uh, issued an invitation to step off of the fence into a pathway of life with him. And he did this with these three women to join him on his mission. The word that he uses there, when Luke says uh, there were many others who provided for them out of their means, that word provision uh, comes from the Greek word diakoneo, which is another word for to minister. They ministered to this fledgling movement of church, uh, uh, this fledgling movement of disciples out of their financial means. You have to imagine the scene here. The disciples are pretty poor. Jesus had no place to lay his head, he claimed. 
and these women are funding the beginning of the original Jesus movement. Not only funding it, but following, learning from him, and going with him. Diakoneo is where we get the English word deacon, the person who has hands-on activity in ministering and caring for the needs of other people. Notice that these women weren't just set free from the fence and released into the wild, but he called them to himself. For one person, they used their freedom not to serve themselves, but to serve Christ. For another, for uh, Joanna, she used her newfound freedom to give generously to, uh, to this movement of Jesus. Not only that, but she would, eventually, she would leave, it seems, high society to follow, this, uh, to follow this grouping of scoundrels that had no place to sleep. A bunch of renegades, Galilean fishermen that were just in it to follow Jesus. Jesus calls people off the fence to follow him on a pathway of life in him. Those two always go together. Every story you see in the Bible is of Jesus calling people down from the fences in their life to join him in his life. Thousands of years later, he's continuing to do that. To you, to me. Calling us out of our self-managing our insatiable desire to control our own lives, our orientation towards self to a new allegiance. And sometimes following Jesus is costly because his value system does not always collaborate with the system of the world and culture around us. In fact, some of the things that Jesus calls us to are in direct confrontation with what is popular and what is known. And some of those things cost people Friendships, family, careers even, I've heard. In some parts of the world, following Jesus costs people their lives and their freedom. And Jesus told us, following me will be costly. I want you to take up your cross and follow me. In other words, I want you to die to your way of living and your agenda and your insatiable desire to control and surrender those things for what I have you. See, here's the, here's the beauty of following Jesus. It may cost you everything you have, but it ends up giving you everything that God has. And the person who experiences that and who's set free and called off the fence tend to be the people who are all in. I don't mean all perfect. I mean all in. The Peters who would say, I'll do anything for you. I'll follow you into the dark. The Joannas who pour out their resources. The Mary Magdalene's who have been purged from demons and now are purging their own lives from their previous passions and desires to follow Jesus. Why? Because they've exchanged rags for riches. Perhaps that's why when all the men flee from the scene of the crucifixion, it's these women who I just named, that are standing there. It's Joanna. It's Mary Magdalene. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not just at the crucifixion, but at the, resur- uh, at the tomb. The first ones to proclaim that Jesus has rose from the dead. This is 
a part of what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a self-help talk, and it's not good advice. It's good news. It is the news that God has broken into the world around us, completely apart from our ability and strength, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has come near to a broken world and to a broken people through Jesus Christ. The gospel is that through his death and resurrection and life, that he has made the goodness of God accessible to all who come near to it. The gospel of Jesus is that he has, through his death and resurrection, been exalted to the right hand of God and is declared by the Father to be both Lord and Messiah. Or if you want to describe the gospel in three words, the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord right now. You say, why would that be good news to me? I'll tell you why it's good news. It means that as you're suffering from that terminal illness that won't go away and you're wondering where in the world is hope, you can remember that someone sits on the throne perpetually forever. When your family is going through drama, when your parents are getting divorced, when your kids are wayward and run away from everything that you taught them that you thought you were doing well. It means when the world is spinning and the ground is hovering underneath your feet and you feel hopeless and in control, you can remember this is not the final chapter in the story. Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe and he will stand on this day and judge the living and the dead. This is not the end of the story. It means when you're struggling and when you can barely make it through Monday and you have no hope of getting to Sunday for that next quick spiritual fix, you can look upon the hills where your help comes from and remind yourself Jesus has been established as Lord. It means that when you're overwhelmed and drowning in your own sorrow and guilt and shame, you can look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and remember he is the one who reached me on the fence and he reaches me now. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who lived, was crucified, and resurrected, has been established as the King and Lord and boss of the universe. And that recalibrates Christians in the way that they live today. And this gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus in the scene goes on preaching, sets people free. It sets the Joannes free. It sets the Susannas free. It sets the Peters free and the Thomases free. The proclamation that Jesus has been established as Lord. You know what Paul said about the gospel? He said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of this good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to anybody who believes it. You hear what he says there? He doesn't say the power of God is in the messenger. The power of God is in your ability to articulate a good testimony or message. He says the power of God is in what Jesus Christ has already done. That alone sets people free. How how beautiful are the feet of of those who bring good news, Romans chapter 10 says. For all who hear and believe, they will be saved, but how can they be saved without a preacher? How can someone preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who have been sent to preach the good news. He's not simply talking about professional preachers on Sunday morning. He's talking about the body of Christ. I get chills 
to think at what would happen if a few people from reality Santa Barbara were so crazy as to take that serious and begin to preach the gospel. And some of you are saying, well, I can't do that. I'm not a good public speaker. I'm not very eloquent. I can't put words together. You know what Paul said? Some of us think he was a good speaker. We've never heard him speak in our lives. You know what Paul said about himself? I didn't come to you with eloquence or words of human wisdom. I came to you with a, a, a display of the spirit of God and power. From all intents and purposes, from what we see in the scriptures about Paul, he wasn't a great speaker at all. Why did he plant churches all throughout Europe? Why did people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Why did knees bow before the king and lord of the universe, Jesus Christ? Because he preached and proclaimed the gospel he went around all of Asia Minor saying, hey, this man who has been crucified has rose from the dead and has now been established as king and lord. Respond to that. Repent of your sins and turn to him and follow him and you shall be saved. You say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say to people. That's intimidating. It doesn't matter. The power of God is not in your ability to articulate the message. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians that it was through the foolishness of the message preached that God was pleased to save those who were lost. You hear that? The message itself barely makes any sense because that's not how we would do it. The king came to die for the people that were sinning against him and through such unseated death and now sits on the throne, that is the most backwards and ironic story of all time. It is a scandalous message. God is teaching through Paul in 1 Corinthians. The, the foolishness of the preaching itself delights me because I get to see people rise to life again through your foolishness. Say, well, I don't know if I'm the right person. Leave that to, to the professionals. No, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. You hear what he's saying? God chooses foolish people, gives them a foolish message, with a lack of articulation to preach the power of the gospel and people will get saved. Why? Quote Paul again, so that we can see that we have this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels, weakness and limits so that the, the surpassing power can be seen to come from God and not us. God delights in saving people through our feebleness and brokenness and weakness and lack of articulation. The power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would happen? In the city in which relationships are so deeply valued Whereas they say, it's all about who you know. And we are deeply and intimately integrated in these circles of people who are dying without God and will stand before God as both judge and king. And you have this treasure in earthen vessels. I shudder to think at what would happen through the streets of Santa Barbara if people in this church came a little unglued if a spark of holy boldness came upon you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you just tried it, you're like, I'm, I'm just gonna say something. 
you just invited somebody out to lunch, or you just went with your coworker to get coffee, or you just got into a spiritual conversation and just let it rip, and just begin to talk about Jesus. I shudder to think at the waves that that would make if an entire church of people who believed in the power of the gospel started gospeling. Look out that way. What do you see? You see a wall. Beyond the wall, though, is the entrance to the school, running parallel with streets like Laguna and Alta Vista, making its way from a poor area of town into a very wealthy area of town, sometimes right next to each other, down uh, through this area by Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt Elementary School into uh, the, the, the monastery and to uh, Santa Barbara Mission into the hills. What's back this way? The best Mexican food that the world has ever tasted. An extreme poverty. Butted up right next to extreme wealth, both of which are searching for an answer, an answer that you have. Beyond the hills is Montecito, with so much wealth they don't even know what to do with it, and so much grief from the fires and the mudslides that they don't know what to do with that either. And somewhere along the way, the wealth has not fixed the grief. What's down that way? State Street and crowds that you don't even want to be around for very long. Parking that will make you cry out to God. And people who are hurting and who come to this town to seek out happiness and instead find more problems. As you move your way through downtown and all the glitz and the glamour and the cafe lights and the cocktails and the night parties and the confetti eggs, you reach the west side, more poverty. And all throughout are people in this town who have been looking for happiness and cannot find it. And they bump shoulders with people at Reality Santa Barbara who have found the good news, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and not just good, but that the Lord has come near in the person of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of God is even right here in Santa Barbara. And you might be the only person who can ever explain that to them. And you might be intimidated by that conversation, you might be afraid of their uh, uh, rejection, you might think that you might bumble the words, and maybe you'll do all of those, and it would, not be, it would not surprise me if God in his power used your bumbling words, uh, your bad uh, arrangement of the story, your lack of scriptural knowledge, even the rejection of a friend to put his power on display and save them anyway. Based on what we see in scripture, it says that when people proclaim the gospel, people will get saved. I know, I believe with all of my heart that if this church started gospeling, people would get saved. I also know and believe that people will reject you. That'll happen, that happens too. Both will happen. You will simultaneously be rejected and received. One person can create quite a stir in a neighborhood. 
what can 500 people do in a small town like Santa Barbara? I want to invite you, my church family, to allow God to expand your faith today. To open up the windows of your imagination and believe for greater and bigger things than you have ever allowed yourself to, uh, to believe for before. I want you to recall the prayer of the Apostle Paul who said that he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. What do you imagine today, Christian? What do you want to see for the city of Santa Barbara? What do you want to see for broken families and marriages? What do you want to see for children? What do you want to see for youth? What do you want to see for singles? What do you want to see for the elderly? What do you want to see for high schoolers and junior hires? What do you want to see for the 100,000 tourists that flood our, our city every year? What do you want to see for yourself? Stop looking down at the area of your life that you're trying to manage and control and start opening up your eyes to the glory and power of God as encapsulated in the good news that the kingdom of God is here. And it's just waiting for somebody with a kernel of faith to believe that he's about to do something. Do you know that Jesus, giving a parable, likened this to a harvest? He said the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. Some of us look out there and we're like, no, it's hard. Jesus is like, no, it's easy. The harvest is plentiful. If I could put it in my own vernacular, Jesus is saying to the church, hey, you want to know about people that are waiting to come to me? There is low-hanging fruit all over this town. La Cumbra and the west side and San Roque and Montecito, all across the beach and in neighborhoods that we haven't even explored yet. Low-hanging fruit. You know what the problem, Jesus said, is? It's not the harvest. The harvest is there. It's the laborers. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field. I'm praying for laborers. I'm not praying for laborers from other churches. I'm praying for laborers in this one. People who have the audacity to think that there's low-hanging spiritual fruit in their own backyard and who might walk up to a tree and with a holy boldness and belief in what God is able to do, walk up to that branch and start shaking it until the fruit falls. The problem is not in the harvest. There are spiritually curious people who are waiting to find the good news. And they're bumping shoulders with us. What if we just tried it? Just try it. What if we just tried, stepped out in small ways and shared the gospel? How do we do this? I want to end by giving you three things, three very simple things. One, it starts with this whole story we've been seeing with Joanna and Susanna and the rest of this group. It's heeding the call of Jesus in your own life to step off the fence and follow him. Maybe some of you in this room have never done that before. Maybe, maybe you don't even know if you're a Christian. Maybe you're here, you're curious. You want to try the church thing, but you're not really sure if you're, if you're one of those. Take care of that right now. What do you think of Jesus? Has he compelled you? Have you seen enough in this man to, to say, this is a different person than anyone I've ever, I've ever thought of. And he's not just a person. He is both God and Lord. Does that compel you to want him? 
If so, follow that instinct that is the Holy Spirit working upon your heart. Step off of the fence and into a pathway of life with him. That's the first step. The next step is a part of following him is sharing the gospel with people in your life. That can sound pretty intimidating. You may be asking, well, how do I even start? What do I say? I'll just, I'm just going to make it simple. Just share your story. Share your story about how God has reached out to you. Attach appropriate scriptures to it as much as possible, but share your story. But always end with an invitation just as Jesus issued an invitation on the fence. Think of Paul in the book of Acts who went up to a crowd or went up to individual people and said, this was my life before. He gave his testimony. I was one of the worst of all people. I, I persecuted the church. I was one of the worst enemies of God, but he came after me and pulled me on the fence on the road to Damascus, and I've never been the same, and now I'm here to declare to you that he died and he rose again, and he is now exalted as both Lord and God, and you must respond to that invitation and follow him. That's it. Nothing fancy, nothing crazy, just God promising that by the power of his spirit, there will be moments where he honors that and a shift will take place in people's hearts. You might not even be able to explain it, but a shift will take place in people's hearts. Other times, they'll reject you, but you have no idea what God is doing on them in the meantime. They might reject you, and he might just be harassing them for the next five years until somebody else comes and proclaims the gospel to him, and it clicks. Whatever it is, God uses people like us who used to be on the fence to drag other people off the fence and respond to an invitation to Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus, for he is both Lord and God. There's nobody like him. And start sharing the good news that you have heard and felt with other people. I can almost guarantee you, only because God does, that if we started doing that as a church, the spiritual climate of this city will begin to shift. And your coworkers will get saved. Your family will get saved. Mark my words. Mark God's words. Forget about my words. Your family will get saved. The people you play volleyball and racquetball will get saved. Your enemies will get saved. And we'll be able to come together on the Lord's Day again and again and again and say to each other with a smile on our face, I have this treasure in, treasure in earthen vessels. And he has shown me that the surpassing power has come from God and not from myself. I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come out here as we sing. As a part of that, that simple model of responding to the, to the gospel, one is to follow him. And the other is to share it with others, to share that good life that we've been brought into. Or perhaps you've been mired in so much in your own life that you've forgotten how good that good news is. And I just want to invite you today to stop everything, even if just for a few minutes, and to look upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has reached out to people in this room who've been locked down on a fence of their own making and has invited them 
to a life they'll never forget. It may be costly, but for those of us that persist, we'll find that we will never want to go back from following Jesus again. He really is that good.